Well, my friends, spring is here. The cherry blossoms and other trees and early spring flowers are in bloom. The spring peepers are singing, and I even saw some very groggy carpenter bees the other day waking up from their long winter's nap. Now, spring also means salamander mating time, at least for some salamander species. This time of year, you're actually more likely to see salamanders out and about, looking for both mates and what we call vernal pools, temporary bodies of water where many species lay their eggs and mate. Salamanders are generally nocturnal and seldom seen, which makes them a little bit mysterious. But there's somewhere around 760 living species of salamander, and they've been around a very long time, about 230 million years. And if there's a common theme that ties them all together, that theme is diversity. They display a wide variety of traits. So let's learn more about those amphibious wonders, the salamanders. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Salamanders look like lizards, but they're amphibians. They have stout bodies, blunt heads, long tails, and usually, but not always, four relatively short legs that project out at right angles to their bodies. Their skin lacks scales, and it's usually smooth to the touch. But other than body shape, there's a lot of variability and exceptions between different salamander species. The skin of newts, a type of salamander, can be velvety or warty and wet to the touch. Salamanders can be drab or brightly colored, and they display a variety of patterns, including stripes, bars, spots, blotches, and dots. Cave-dwelling salamanders can lack pigmentation altogether and have a translucent pink or a pearlescent appearance. Male newts become dramatically colored during the breeding season, but generally speaking, darker, more drab colors help camouflage the salamander. Bright colors advertise to predators that the salamander is, at best, bad tasting, and at worst, toxic. Glands on the head, back, and tail of some species can produce secretions that are repellent or even poisonous. Some salamander toxins can be especially potent. The rough-skinned newt, found in the Pacific Northwest from Alaska to Northern California, produces a neurotoxin called tetrodotoxin, the most toxic non-protein substance known. This is the same poison found in pufferfish, you know, those ones that can kill you if the chef doesn't prepare it right. Handling the newts can cause some minor skin irritation, but ingesting even a small amount can be potentially deadly. Research has shown that fish, frogs, reptiles, birds, and mammals are all susceptible to this salamander's toxic secretions. And yes, that includes humans. In 1979, a 29-year-old Oregon man died after eating a rough-skinned newt. And in 1979, that wasn't even a TikTok challenge. Most species have four toes on their front limbs and five on their hind limbs, if they even have hind limbs. Some aquatic species of salamander have reduced or even absent hind limbs, which makes them look more eel-like. But even a salamander's toes are often specialized for their environment. Some are adapted for climbing with long, square-tipped toes or even plate-like feet that use suction to stick to surfaces. Rock-dwelling species have larger feet with short, blunt toes. 
And salamanders come in quite a range of sizes, too. The smallest are the minute or pygmy salamanders, which are just barely over an inch long, including their tail. On the other end of the spectrum is the giant Chinese salamander, one of the largest amphibians in the world, which can be over six feet long and weigh up to 145 pounds. Now, because they're amphibians, salamanders have highly permeable skin, which in many species serves as a respiratory membrane. They don't have lungs and need to stay damp in order to breathe. Although staying true to the theme of variability, salamander respiration can involve lungs, gills, and the membranes of the mouth and throat, depending on the species. But this makes them all reliant on habitats in or near water or other cool, damp places, like under rotting logs or leaf litter. Glands in the skin discharge mucus to help keep the skin moist, important for respiration and regulating body temperature. This sticky mucus layer also helps protect against bacterial infections and mold. It reduces friction when they're swimming and makes them slippery and more difficult for a predator to get a hold of. Now, salamanders periodically shed their skin like reptiles do, but during molting, the skin initially breaks around the mouth and the salamander moves forward through the gap to shed the skin. When the front limbs have worked clear, a series of body ripples pushes the skin further backwards. When the hind limbs are extracted, they push the skin even farther back, and eventually it's freed by friction as the salamander walks forward with its tail pressed against the ground. Now, you won't often find a shed salamander skin like you might find one from a snake, because salamanders frequently eat their shed skin. Most salamanders hunt using their vision, which can detect light in the ultraviolet range. The exception to this, of course, is cave-dwelling species that have no eyes. Smell plays an important role in territory maintenance, predator detection, and courtship rituals. Salamanders have two types of sensory areas that respond to the chemistry of their environment. Sensory receptors in the nasal cavity detect odors in the air and water, just like ours. And an organ called the vomeral nasal organ, a sense organ located in the roof of the mouth, picks up on other chemical cues in their environment. On a bit of a side note, because it's interesting, in addition to salamanders, all snakes and lizards have a vomeral nasal organ. Other animals that have one include ungulates, hooved animals like deer, and cats. Ever see a cat sniffing something then come away with its mouth partly open? That's the cat activating its vomeral nasal organ. This response is technically called the Flemin response, spelled F-L-E-H-M-E-N, or Fleminning, after, I don't know, someone named Flemin, I assume, but it didn't seem important enough for me to really look much further into it. But it directs inhaled compounds into the vomeral nasal organ. After finding the scent, the animal will raise its head, wrinkle its nose, and lift its lips, and it actually briefly stops breathing. Now, salamanders typically lay eggs in water and have aquatic larvae, but there's great variation in their life cycles, too. Species living in harsh environments can reproduce while still in their larval state. Some salamander species are fully aquatic throughout their lives, others take to the water intermittently, and some are entirely terrestrial as adults. Red-bellied newts are terrestrial as juveniles and largely aquatic as adults. In temperate regions, salamander reproduction is seasonal, and they migrate to breeding grounds in the springtime. Males usually arrive first and, in some instances, set up territories. 
In most species, the sexes look alike, so they use olfactory and tactile cues to help identify potential mates. Pheromones play an important part in this process, which is where the vomeral nasal organ becomes important. These pheromones can be produced by the abdominal gland in males and by the cloacal glands and skin of both sexes. Most, but again not all, salamanders mate in water, and fertilization occurs via indirect sperm transfer. With this type of fertilization, the male deposits a spermatophore on the ground or in the water, depending on the species, which the female then picks up with her vent. Often there's an elaborate courtship ritual involved in this process. Now, some species might engage in direct sperm transfer or external fertilization like frogs, where the male releases sperm onto an egg mass. And just to continue with the theme of variety, there's also three different types of egg depositation. Some spawn large numbers of eggs in quiet, often temporary ponds where predators like fish are scarce. Others lay smaller batches of medium-sized eggs in a concealed site in flowing water, which are usually guarded by an adult, normally the female. The third strategy is to lay a small number of large eggs on land in a well-hidden spot, where they're also guarded by the mother. And then some species, like fire salamanders, are oviviviparous, something I talked about in episode 27 on snakes. This is when the female retains the eggs inside her body until they hatch, either into larvae to be deposited into a body of water or as fully formed juveniles. Salamanders are usually considered to have no voice and don't use sound for communication like frogs do, but some species do make noises. Some make soft ticking or popping noises by opening and closing valves in their nose. The California giant salamander can make bark or rattle sounds, and a few species can squeak by contracting muscles in the throat. The arboreal salamander squeaks by retracting its eyes into its head, forcing air out of its mouth. The Encetina salamander, another Pacific Northwest species, occasionally makes a hissing sound, while sirens, which are a group of aquatic salamanders, sometimes produce quiet clicks and can resort to what's described as faint shrieks if attacked. Salamander vocalizations have not been well studied, but it's assumed that they make these noises to startle predators. Now, salamanders are opportunistic predators. They're generally not restricted to specific prey, but feed on almost any organism that's a reasonable size. The diet of smaller species includes worms, beetles, beetle larvae, grasshoppers, and spiders, just to name a few. Large species, like the Chinese giant salamander, can eat crabs, fish, small mammals, amphibians, and aquatic insects. Salamanders may even eat other salamanders. Now, interestingly, tiger salamander tadpoles in ephemeral pools sometimes resort to eating each other, but it seems that they have the ability to distinguish between their relatives and non-relatives, and they tend to target non-relatives. Most species of salamander have small teeth in both their upper and lower jaws. Unlike frogs, even salamander larvae have teeth. Although larval teeth are cone-shaped, adult teeth are adapted so they can readily grasp their prey. Aquatic salamanders capture their prey with their teeth, then proceed to toss their head while quickly drawing water in and out of their mouth while snapping their jaws. Terrestrial salamanders catch prey by flicking their sticky tongue out in a move that takes less than half a second. 
The stickiness of their tongue comes from mucus secretions from glands on the roof of the mouth and in the tip of the tongue itself. To catch prey this way, the salamander positions itself with its snout close to the prey. Its mouth will gape open widely, the lower jaw remains stationary, and the tongue bulges and changes shape as it shoots forward. The tongue has a central depression, and the rim of this depression collapses inward on the target as it is struck, trapping the prey in a mucus-laden trough. The tongue is then retracted and the mouth closed. Larger, resistant prey is held by the teeth, while repeated protrusions and retractions of the tongue draw it in. Swallowing involves alternating contraction and relaxation of the throat muscles and is assisted by depressing the eyeballs into the roof of the mouth. Now, some species take even this a step further. If you listened to the last episode, you might remember me talking about the hyoid bone in woodpeckers and how it acts as a seatbelt for their brains. In some species of salamander, muscles surrounding the hyoid bone contract to store elastic energy in springy connective tissue. This energy will actually shoot the hyoid bone out of the mouth, giving the tongue an extra bit of reach. Muscles originating in the pelvic region that connect to the tongue are used to reel the tongue and the hyoid bone back into their original positions. Some salamander species use what's called tail autonomy to escape predators. When attacked by a predator, the tail drops off and continues to wiggle around for a little while, while the salamander either runs away or stays still enough not to be noticed, while the predator is distracted by its zombie tail. I've witnessed tail autonomy with skinks here at Dispatches HQ, and it's both fascinating and a little bit disturbing. The tail regrows with time, and in fact, salamanders can regenerate other complex tissues, including limbs and the lens or the retina of their eye. Within only a few weeks of losing part of a limb, a salamander perfectly reforms the missing structure. Researchers have been trying to determine the conditions required for the growth of new limbs and hope that this regeneration could be applied to humans using stem cells. If the process involved in forming new tissue can be reverse-engineered into humans, it might be possible to heal injuries involving the spinal cord or the brain, repair damaged organs, and reduce scarring after surgery. Interestingly, salamanders appear in mythology throughout history. Many of these myths associate salamanders with fire, probably because many salamanders are found inside rotting logs. If the log was put into a fire, the salamander would attempt to escape, leading to the belief that salamanders were actually created from the flames. Early travelers to China were shown garments supposedly woven from salamander hair or wool, which, of course, you now know they don't have. This cloth was completely undamaged by fire, but these garments were actually woven from asbestos. The milky-colored mucus produced by salamanders when frightened also gave rise to the idea that salamanders could withstand heat and even put out fires. And newts were often associated with witchcraft, even before Monty Python. What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! There's estimated to be about 245 species of salamander in North America, more than any place else in the world, and the highest concentration is in the Appalachian Mountain region. So let's just touch on a few species of salamander. The largest salamander in North America, and fourth largest in the world, is the hellbender, sometimes called a lasagna lizard or a snot otter. 
There's a couple of theories as to how the Hellbender got its name. One theory is that it was named by settlers who thought it looked like a creature from hell that was bent on returning. A second theory is that the undulating skin of the Hellbender reminded observers of someone writhing in pain as if they were being tortured in the afterlife. While nowhere near the size of their Asian cousins, Hellbenders average about 17 inches long and can reach up to 2.5 feet at their longest. They can weigh 3.5 to 5.5 pounds. In addition to its size, Hellbenders can be distinguished from other native salamanders, like the mud puppy, by their flatter bodies and thick folds of skin along their sides. Now, Hellbenders are superbly adapted to the shallow, fast-flowing, rocky streams where they live. Their flattened shape offers little resistance to the flowing water, allowing them to work their way upstream and crawl into narrow spaces under rocks. The wrinkles and folds along their sides provide more surface area for, quote, cutaneous respiration, unquote, breathing through the skin. Once a hellbender finds a favorable location, it generally doesn't stray far from it, except occasionally for breeding and for hunting and it will protect it from other hellbenders both in and out of the breeding season. The hellbender fills a particular ecological niche in its ecosystem, both as a predator and as prey, which either it or its ancestors have occupied for around 65 million years. They feed primarily on crayfish and small fish, but also insects, worms, mollusks, tadpoles, and smaller salamanders. Hellbenders are eaten by a variety of fish, snakes, and turtles. Now, hellbenders have poor eyesight, but they do have light-sensitive cells all over their bodies. The ones on their tail are especially fine-tuned and might help them position safely under rocks without their tails poking out to give them away. They have a good sense of smell, and they'll move upstream in search of food like dead fish following the scent. Smell is possibly their most important sense when hunting. They also have what's called a lateral line, which is a sensory organ found in fish that detects vibrations and pressure gradients in the water. Hellbender breeding season is in the late summer and early autumn. Hellbenders engage in external fertilization. The male excavates a brood site, a saucer-shaped depression under a rock or a log, with its entrance positioned out of the direct current, usually pointing downstream. When a female approaches his brood site, he guides or drives her into his burrow and prevents her from leaving until she lays eggs. The female will lay 150 to 200 eggs over a two to three day period. As she lays the eggs, the male positions himself alongside or slightly above them, fertilizing the eggs while swaying his tail and moving his hind limbs, which disperses the sperm uniformly. The male will attempt to have as many females as possible lay eggs in his nest. Nearly 2,000 eggs have been counted in a single nest. After the female finishes laying, the male drives her away from the nest and guards the eggs himself. Incubating males rock back and forth and undulate their lateral skin folds, which circulates the water, increasing oxygen supply to both eggs and adult. Incubation lasts from a month and a half to two and a half months, depending on the region. Possibly one of the most endangered salamander species is the Shenandoah salamander. The last estimate in 2009 put their population at just over 140,000 at best. These salamanders are three and a half to four and a half inches long and have two distinct color phases, striped and unstriped. 
The striped color phase has a narrow stripe down the center of its back, ranging in color from red to yellow, while the unstriped color phase is uniformly dark and occasionally has scattered brass-colored flecks. In both phases, there's white or yellow spots along the side of the body. They look similar to the more common red-backed salamander, but the two can be distinguished by the red-backed salamander's wider stripe and salt and pepper underside, and also location. Shenandoah salamanders are found exclusively in Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. Not only that, but they're found only on the north-facing talus slopes of three specific mountains above 3,000 feet in elevation. Now, talus slopes are generally pretty dry, and Shenandoah salamanders are lungless and need moisture since they breathe through their skin. The Shenandoah salamander is generally found in moist microhabitats scattered throughout this dry talus environment. Not exactly an optimal habitat, but they're excluded from optimal forested areas with deep, moist soil due to competition with their more aggressive red-backed cousins. Now, the talus will eventually weather and erode, creating soil and increasing moisture, which sounds like a good thing until you consider that it will also make it suitable for the red-backed salamander, which could invade and displace the Shenandoah salamander. The Shenandoah salamander's life history is not well understood, but adult salamanders have a high survival rate and can live to be up to 25 years old. Female salamanders don't breed before the age of four, and they lay average clutch sizes of 13 eggs every other year. Clutches are laid in areas of moisture and incubated for one to three months. Fertilization is internal, and the entire development process takes place in the egg. There's no aquatic larval stage like many other salamanders. During incubation, females guard the nest, and they don't forage. Now, as if their limited range and competition with their red-backed salamanders weren't challenging enough, Shenandoah salamanders face extinction from other threats. Invasive insects like the gypsy moth defoliate trees, which reduces ground moisture even more. Another invasive insect, the hemlock woody adelgid, kills hemlock trees. Now, not only does this contribute to reduced moisture, the increased number of hemlock needles on the ground increases the acidity of the soil, and that can have an impact on both the salamander and their prey species. One of the most common salamanders, and the last one I'll talk about today, is the spotted salamander. These salamanders are dark-colored with two uneven rows of yellowish-orange spots that run from just behind their eyes to the tip of their tail. They can grow to be over nine and a half inches long. This species ranges from Nova Scotia to Lake Superior to southern Georgia and east Texas. Spotted salamanders usually live in mature forests where there are ponds or vernal pools for breeding sites. Vernal pools are good breeding sites because they dry up in the summer, which excludes fish that might eat the salamander eggs and larvae but they retain water long enough to allow salamander larvae to complete development and turn into terrestrial adults. Spotted salamanders are fossorial, which is a fancy word meaning they spend most of their time underground. They rarely come above ground, except maybe after a rain or when they're foraging and breeding. During the winter, they brumate underground, and they're not seen again until breeding season, which usually begins in March. 
During the majority of the year, spotted salamanders live under leaves, rotting logs, or in burrows in deciduous forests. But in the springtime, when the temperature rises and the moisture level is high, the salamanders make an abrupt migration to their annual breeding ponds. In just one night, hundreds to thousands of salamanders might make the trip to their ponds for mating. Spotted salamanders tend to follow the same path in their migration to and from their burrows and breeding ponds, and they undertake this journey in conditions that lack visual cues, since it's usually at night and there's usually cloud cover. Some research has shown evidence that spotted salamanders might learn landmarks in their habitat that are reliable indicators of resource locations like food or provide orientation clues for migration to and from the breeding ponds. Males generally arrive at the breeding ponds first, and fertilization is indirect. Females usually lay about a hundred eggs in one clutch that cling to the underwater plants and form egg masses. Spotted salamanders have a unique polymorphism in the outer jelly layers of their egg masses. One morph is clear in appearance and contains a water-soluble protein. The other morph is white and contains a crystalline hydrophobic protein. This polymorphism is thought to be an advantage in vernal pools since they tend to have varying levels of dissolved nutrients. It also appears to reduce mortality from predation by wood frog tadpoles, which are often found in the same pools. Unlike the other salamanders I talked about, which guard their clutches, spotted salamander adults only stay in the pool a few days. The eggs will hatch in one to two months. Now, interestingly, spotted salamander eggs have a symbiotic relationship with a certain species of green algae. The dense gelatinous matrix surrounding the eggs keeps them moist, but it inhibits oxygen diffusion, which is essential for embryo development. The algae provides increased oxygen and supplemental nutrition by photosynthesis. It also removes the embryo's waste products, aiding in the salamander's embryonic development and growth. The developing eggs produce carbon dioxide, which can be consumed by the algae. Spotted salamanders can live to be over 30 years old. And with that, Wild Wanderers, we come to the end of another episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please click those like and follow buttons. It's free, and it can potentially help me out a lot. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support future episodes, here's some ways to do that. Check out the Dispatches from the Forest merch store at cafepress.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. Get yourself some sweet dispatches from the forest merchandise. There's t-shirts, water bottles, hoodies, and so much more. You can also consider becoming a patron. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. Dispatches from the forest at gmail.com is both my PayPal address and where you can send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. For additional content, follow Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.